Would you pray with me? Father God, you alone are worthy to be praised. No other name in heaven or on earth is worthy to be praised. As the author and creator of everything, your very nature and existence demands a response from your creation. Through your perfect design, you created a balance in life from the smallest detail to the largest mountain. Your holy word tells us that you span the heavens with your hand and know the dust of the earth. You are so mighty and amazing in all of your works, Father God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the fathers in this church. I thank you for their desire to be a part of your body and to lead their families well by setting the priority of being in your word, participating in the regular gatherings, and proclaiming your gospel by the very lives that they live. May the men of this church be known as men that love you enough to cast away the lies and priorities that this world tries to peddle off as the quote-unquote good life, and instead choose to live a life that is honoring and glorifying unto you. Father God, we take a moment to lift up the people of Turkey in the wake of the terrible earthquake. With over 35,000 dead and over 100,000 people now homeless, we ask that you would meet those people where they are. We pray that they would find shelter and food. May you send medical aid to those that are hurting physically. But above all else, we pray that the people would see that they have a loving father that they can turn to in this time of crisis. For any of our brothers and sisters that are ministering in that region, Lord, May you give them physical strength and endurance to love those people well. May they be able to spread your gospel news to those people that are hurting so badly. As we begin our service this morning, Lord, we also want to pray for our sister churches that are joining us by gathering in your holy name today. We pray specifically for the uh, Chapel Church and Pastor uh, Stephen Brucker up in Washington. May your word be preached with confidence this morning and that local body be empowered to go throughout their lives this week proclaiming your gospel news. I also lift up my brother Hans as he presents your word to us today. May you prepare our hearts to be convicted in the ways that we have misaligned our thoughts on duty or tradition and focus us fully on what it looks like to cling to your word and um, see what you desire from, from us as your kids. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Michael. You can open up your Bibles to Colossians 2, 16 through 23. How many of you have ever heard of the phrase, running around like a chicken with no head? It's an idiom that, come, that has come to mean carrying on in a disorganized manner or running around without direction or aimlessly. It originates from as early as the 14th century where it was typical to, uh, to cut off the head of a chicken with an axe before preparing it to be cooked. It became very well known in the middle of last century as a headless chicken known as Miracle Mike, the headless chicken, lived for 18 months after being beheaded and he toured the nation as a kind of carnival act. Now, if you want nightmares for a week, you can go look that up, but that's all I'm going to give you. Now, as a city boy myself, I had gone most of my life without ever experiencing the reality of a chicken who had no head. I'd heard the phrase, but never seen it before. But then on one of my visits to West Africa, my good friend Marcel decided it was time for all of us city folk to know what we were eating that evening. And so with a quick swipe of a knife, the head was removed, but rather than run around, Marcel held tightly onto the body while its legs ran sporadically in the air. It was, quite honestly, a hilarious sight. Now, this creature was animate 
and active in its actions. But in actuality, that activity was merely the outward show of a death that had not yet fully set in. It was, if you will, the last gasp of supposed life that betrayed the fact that death was inevitable. Even for Miracle Mike, who lived for 18 months, death was inevitable. Now, as we turn our sights back to the situation in the local church of Colossae again this week, we see Paul use a similar idiomatic turn of phrase. For there, in the immediate context of the letter that he was writing to them, were people on the borders of the church trying to infiltrate its doctrine with empty religious mysticism. Its traditions were a blend of religious practices whose source was in human wisdom and not in scriptural truth. And while its activity may have been lively and animated, it was, in fact, evidence of a spirituality that chased a counterfeit God. And its activity was actually a sign that it had been separated from the source it was supposedly seeking. It had been separated from the head. And so Paul, in typical pointed fashion, will make it very clear that anyone who subscribed to this counterfeit religion was actually part of a body that had been separated from its head, not a body who was gaining its instruction, its animation, its very life from its head, like the church. Now, when all is said and done with our text today, Paul will present the local church at Colossae with his final arguments of forced introspection so that their hearts will be adequately prepared to understand and avoid counterfeit spirituality. And instead, what he will drive them to is to pursue the truth of Christ and the activity that is present when one is connected to him as Lord in the midst of his body. And we will see that spiritual life is found in holding fast to Christ. Spiritual life is found in holding fast to Christ. And I think this is important to us as a church, is it not? That's why you're here. You want to know where spiritual life is found. Well, spiritual life is found in holding fast to Christ. But one of the implications that we'll see as we go through the text today is that, quite honestly, we can't just do that alone. We have to do that as individuals, absolutely, but we cannot do it alone. And so we will find that spiritual life is found in holding fast to Christ as part of his body. Now, our text today, like last week, is an artful tapestry of overlaid and entwined ideas and philosophies that are a bit difficult to unpack and separate. So I wore a suit again in order to try and make it sound a little bit better. No, I'm just kidding. I would actually covet your prayers. Later today, I will be speaking at my father-in-law, Kelly's father's uh, celebration of life. And so if you would like to pray for us later today, I'll be preaching the gospel at a country club, and uh, I would love to have your prayers along with us. But it did help that I had a suit on today for this text, did it not? (laughs) All right. So let's read the entirety of it and pick out three clear points that are interwoven throughout. And we're gonna read Paul's words to the Colossian church body here in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Let's read together. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
referring to the things that, are all, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In the first portion of this, verses 16 through 19, we see Paul repeat two emphasis as he clearly tells them not to fall for the trap of a counterfeit spiritual life because it is Christ alone that gives life. And then overlapping in verses 19 through 23, he re-emphasizes that life and, why, and how it comes from holding fast to Christ as part of his body. So let's look at the first portion uh, that Paul twice gives a command that could be summarized as, don't fall for the trap of, counterfeit, of a counterfeit spiritual life. Don't fall for the trap of a counterfeit spiritual life. It's interesting as you read this, uh, a lot of the times when you read Paul, he makes statements that you can actually see the flip side of the coin at the same time. For example, he says that there are those who are separated from the head, uh, and he's the one from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, uh, grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, he's indicating that there is a growth that can be not from God, but it's a growth that will eventually lead to death. I find in our society, because we are... Um, a little bit starstruck because of social media or what have you. We look at big churches and we think, oh, the spirit must be there. There must be spiritual growth. Or we look at somebody who posts their daily devotional on their Instagram, or I guess I'm old, so probably TikTok now. Is that what's used, right? Uh, and we think, oh, man, look at that. They have their coffee set perfectly with their Bible set perfectly with their journal in such perfect handwriting. They must have a growth that's from God. But the reality is, is this growth is honestly a little bit inanimate. It's going to lead to death. And that's what Paul's trying to talk about here. And so he begins with the word therefore. And this connector and transition word reminds us that it's extremely important to remember the context of the surrounding verses. Last week, Paul outlined the more high-level philosophical idea of enslavement to religious tradition outside of Christ. And this week, he will get more detailed and specific in what that captivity looks like. Paul also painted a picture for us last week of two kingdoms and the accompanying authority in each. And recall that one is displayed in the philosophies and empty deceit of the world. That's what I'm talking about with that false growth. And the other is displayed in the wisdom of Christ. One has Christ as authority and leaves you victorious, and one leaves you enslaved, captivated by the demonic sinfulness of this world. Recall that the, finish, the finishing picture that he gave last week was of Christ being victorious as Lord and sovereign over all the authorities of the demonic realm. And so we have to be careful, right, when we see that Instagram post or when we look at the large church. There might be spiritual growth, and that's what we pray for, absolutely. But at the same time, we have to be discerning because there are two kingdoms and two authorities advancing. And sometimes the whole point of what the adversary is doing is to try and get us confused. And so we have to be discerning. And so look at verse 15 here. We see that what we're operating from as we move into this text is that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so Christ's kingdom has triumphed over this other kingdom. Its head is cut off, so to speak. The serpent's head has been crushed. And yet, the legs are still kicking, are they not? And so we can be confused sometimes. And so the first thing that we should note are the similarities in Paul command, Paul's commands. They mirror one another. The first is, let no one pass judgment on you. And the second is, like it, let no one disqualify you. Now, both of these have to do with authority over one's spiritual walk. And this will be revisited and reemphasized in verse 19 when it discusses Christ as the head of the church, this idea of authority. It's a title. 
this idea of the head of the church. It's a title that speaks to his authority over his people. But the implication is that the adherence to these false religious practices shares something in common with the true church of Colossian believers. They all want to submit to an authority. And the sad reality is that only one group submits in actuality to Christ as that authority. The other, groups think, the other group thinks that they submit to Christ, but in fact have fallen for a trap of counterfeit spirituality that has nothing to do with them, and in fact lifts up every adherent to it as their own authority. Now, how do we know the difference? How do we stay out of this confusion as Christians? Well, a healthy church, a healthy body, is one in which every part of the body, including the leaders and the congregants, search out and submit to the authority of Christ as declared in his word. It is not a church that has no conflict. It's not a church that moves along seamlessly and perfectly through all the winds of life. No, it's a church that when those things come up, when the temptations, the trials, the conflict come up, they collectively and unitedly submit to the authority of Christ as declared in his word and search out that authority. And this is an authority that is, again, in all of Scripture, not just one verse here or there that we take as our pet verse. It takes all of Scripture into consideration and doesn't go off prematurely into spiritual activity without first understanding where it comes from and whom, to whom it attaches us. In Colossae, the telltale sign that, was, uh, that what was being produced was a spiritual hierarchy and divisions were that some were judging other members' spiritual maturity not based on scriptural truth, like holiness or righteousness given by Christ, but on human systems made of religious activity. A more mature church submits to the word of God alone, which collectively draws all of us into an otherworldly unity that will not be harmed by counterfeit religion. My prayer for us, Mission Fellowship, is that we would mature to a place where we ask those questions of ourselves and one another that we covered a few weeks ago. What is Christ requiring of us? What does the gospel require of us? And that we deal with conflict and questions with our Bibles open, searching scripture together, realizing that none of us have the answers, but Christ does. And his word alone is the measuring rod by which we judge our conduct and by which we qualify one another through the work of Christ into the kingdom of heaven. And so in here in verses 16 through 19, Paul drills down into a deeper dive and addresses specifics of whatever false religious attitudes were possibly creeping into the church. Now, we don't know, again, if the source was completely Jewish mysticism or pagan folk religion or proto-Gnostic mysticism. Uh, there, were, there were just certain activities that characterized this false religion. In verses 16 and 18, Paul notes two categories that both seem to have their background in more Jewish mysticism and a reliance upon the Old Testament ceremonial dietary laws and festal calendar. But it could also apply to pagan and early Gnostic or proto-Gnostic tradition as well. Apparently, the adherence of this uh, new religious tradition that was coming in, or maybe an old one that they were trying to pass off as Christianity, they were passing judgment upon the members of the body because these members were not adhering to the same religious practices they were. The implication is that these adherents thought they were more holy because of what they did not eat or drink, or because they celebrated certain feasts of Judaism. And friends, this is alive and well today. You might read this and go, well, good thing we don't worship angels or don't you know, deal with visions and don't have these, this asceticism. No, friends, this is all very alive today in Christianity. People will use their eating and drinking habits to declare that they are more active in their Christian life than another believer. On the Reformed side, those who might know a better whiskey might be a little bit more holy. On the Pentecostal side, you get near that stuff and you obviously are a sinner, Right? 
Uh, and so we have this idea, and so perhaps it's drinking, or perhaps it's your eating of meat, or you're not eating of meat, you're drinking of alcohol, or you're not drinking of alcohol. Any of these, and much more than these, are examples of religious activity or self-denial that can become arrogant markers of self-decided holiness in the church today. Now the question is, what are you and I using as markers of holiness? That's the question for us. What are you and I using as markers of holiness? Friends, we can even do it in this Enneagram-saturated age with personality styles. Well, that personality style is more godly than that personality style. We can do it with anything. We start to raise ourselves up above everyone else. And so what are you and I using as markers of holiness? Is it an outward spiritual show? Is it an inward change of heart? that manifests in humble obedience to Christ and loving service to his people? Which one sounds more godly and biblical to you? Is it showing yourself as part of the justice movement? That makes you more Christian than a person who doesn't do that. Is it subscribing to a certain political philosophy? Or is it taking all philosophies and making them uh, submitted to the word of God and what his word says? You see, true spiritual change is what I said. It's a change in heart that manifests in humble obedience to Christ and loving service to his people. And the church will not be what it is supposed to be if we continue to confuse religious show, religious production, with actual conversion that leads to holiness. I'll give you a very practical example from this week. This last week, if you're paying attention to news, there were many rumblings about a revival, quote-unquote, happening at Asbury College in Kentucky. And some of you even asked me, sent me emails or texts or talked to me in person and said, what do you think? As if I have the bat phone and no. (laughs) I don't. I'm no closer to Jesus than you are, FYI. And the question is, is this a genuine move of the Holy Spirit? Is this revival? My answer is, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. How will we know? Well, what I do know is this. Multiple days straight of missing class to sing worship songs and sit in prayer and meditation at a parachurch institution does not require the Holy Spirit as source and is not automatically a sign of the Holy Spirit's movement. If anything, it could be revivalism fueled by social media, the chance to miss class, and the collegiate age group's fleshly desire of hashtag FOMO. You see, this thing is sprouted on social media. True revival is driven by the Holy Spirit through the catalyst of God's word preached. And it results in true conversion toward obedience to Christ. Revivalism is man's attempt to build up a religious fervor for a spiritual production, but it has no lasting influence in regards to a community's holiness. Now what will tell us if this is actually revival is if it results in hearts brought closer in loving obedience to Christ as Savior and Lord. And hopefully, that is what's happening. Can you imagine if that swept our country? As a Christian, we should all be praying for that, that this is genuine revival impressed upon the hearts of those students by the Spirit of God. That's what we should be praying for. And at the same time, we should also be discerning. You see, if it results in confession and deep repentance of hidden sin, if it results in an upbuilding of the church, not just a parachurch institution, if it results in reconciliation and forgiveness in relationships, 
and an enduring righteousness of lifestyle that could only come from Christ, then, and only then, can we look back and say, yes, that was a work of God and not man. Recall to mind Christ's words from our New Testament reading. Religious activity can sometimes be the exterior action, even while the hearts underneath are far from the Lord. Friends, I am super excited. There were, quote unquote, somewhat Jesus-aligned advertisements for the Super Bowl, but I'm also not banking on that, that that's going to revive this country. We have to be discerning. We can pray for it. We should pray for it, but we have to be discerning. Oftentimes, our words, our religious action, it's a lot of show on the outside, but our hearts are still far from the Lord. Religious activity, even self-denial that's noted in our text, is often a spiritual production rather than spiritual change. And the reason for my caution, dear friends, is not out of a critical spirit. I know that you might think that, but it's a much deeper desire than that. It's a desire that people, especially you, the flock that I am charged with caring for, is not led astray by counterfeit religion that blinds you from the truth of Christ and the requirement that conversion has upon our hearts. Well, the second set of items that Paul notes are religious activities, likewise, that were being used to tell people that they were disqualified from the faith. In essence, because they were not practicing enough self-denial or providing enough worship to angels or proclaiming that they had visions. Now, friends, these lend themselves likewise to Jewish mysticism, but also have a, a hint of Stoic paganism and Gnostic thought. Asceticism is a fancy word for denying yourself even good things like God-given food and drink, relationships and comforts. The Desert Fathers, if you study church history, were an early example of this in Christianity, attempting to get closer to God by living in caves and becoming gaunt with hunger and, excuse me, and thirst. <clears throat> they believed that doing so would cause them to be more holy and not indulge in their fleshly appetites. This view of asceticism combined with a heavy emphasis on archangels, guardian angels, and saints is still very present in Catholicism. And an emphasis upon dreams and visions without discernment of whether or not it's from God is still very prevalent in many Pentecostal and charismatic churches today. All of these things are still with us today, and we have to be discerning. Because we don't want to fall for the trap of a counterfeit spiritual life, do we? But friends, falling into the trap of a counterfeit spiritual life is not just getting taken in by religious production and human-driven revivalism. It is taking any form of religious activity, even biblical and godly religious activity, and believing that it will give you some form of spiritual advancement or success or get you to heaven when you die. All of these ideas are apart from staying connected to Jesus Christ, who is the source of our holiness. He's the one who empowers it. He's the one who furnishes it. He's the one who builds it. And this is Paul's next point. These religious activities, when not for Christ, empowered by Christ and connected to, to Christ, they come not from the Spirit or a desire to honor God as he deserves. Instead, he says, they come from a, a being puffed up without reason by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. He says that they come from ego, being puffed up as if we were something in God's eyes because of our religious activity. And this, Paul says, is a delusion. It's without reason. Because remember, it's his sovereign grace that was furnished on us to even give us the ability to do these things. Friends, do you realize that when you pray, you didn't do that on your own? When you wake up in the morning and you say, you know what, I'm going to get in the word today, that was a gracious gift of God. Amen. When you're able to utter prayer in praise, 
That was because he went before you to ignite your heart to do so. Because if left up to ourselves, if left up to myself, ah, no, we would puff ourselves up. We would worship ourselves. And so Paul says to believe that you can do these things and that these things make you spiritually alive, it's without reason. These are driven not by the Holy Spirit within us, but by a sensuous mind, one that is captive to our earthly senses and emotions and has no understanding to God, of God. Now, this can be anything that does not have at its core motivation staying connected to Christ as the king, as the source of life, as the place of love and grace and mercy for the Christian. It can be a Christless, dutiful reading of the Bible, It can be a Christless memorization of Scripture. It can be a Christless manipulative use of prayer. It can be a Christless need for social interaction at church. All of this is empty, and worse, it is enslaving. You see, when we don't realize that the point of Christian activity is to exist within a relationship with Christ and his people, and to receive life from him, We begin to run on a kind of spiritual treadmill that doesn't stop. And the unfortunate part is that this treadmill does not result in anything productive. You're forced to keep doing it, believing that you will see results, but all the while you are actually getting farther and farther from your goal, getting exhausted, seeing at a distance that your goal of connection with Christ is not attainable. And so it becomes rather a spiritual life that embitters and causes us to become exhausted rather than encouraged. And it brings bitterness rather than joy because in the structure of that kind of spiritual life and belief, we believe that God has failed us by not responding to our amazing spiritual achievements. We keep attempting to be satisfied in the counterfeit when all the while it's slowly killing us because we are detached from Christ. This is a Christless Christianity. Friends, if this rings a bell for you, I want to tell you, you are not alone. I must confess to you this week that as a pastor, I realize that I can and have often easily fallen into this counterfeit faith. I convince myself that because I am in the Word studying for a sermon or because I am praying through the directory or because I am at church serving, that I have a vibrant spiritual life attached to the head. But then, as I was this week, I find myself flailing in my inner life, and I start to cry out to God, wondering where he is in the midst of the struggle and why he hasn't seen all of my amazing spiritual work. But then, it was through his gracious voice proclaimed out of the mouth of a good brother this week that simply asked me, are you still connected to Christ? Are you loving Christ and allowing his love to penetrate your heart? Maybe those weren't the exact words, but that's what I heard. I heard, is your reading, is your prayer, is your service meant to hold fast to him, or is it something else? So, brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in this place of being on that religious treadmill of a Christless Christianity, please recognize that Christ has never left you. He is still head over his people, the church, and if you are his, you will never not be his. He has made you his own. But maybe, just maybe, like me, Maybe it's your own affections that are becoming distant to Christ. Or maybe they're becoming distant to Christ because your affections are becoming distant to his people. And so I want to encourage you, as I was this week, to lift your eyes to Christ and to remember your place in his body. And you will find vitality in your Christian walk once again. 
Let your scripture reading be to connect with the source of love and life. Let your prayer be to spend time in the presence of the one who has saved you. Let your time amongst his people be a celebration of the fact that his grace has been shed and poured out upon all of us who did not deserve it. And you will find your life, your spiritual life, vital once again. Paul warns us, don't fall for the trap of a counterfeit spiritual life. And he reminds us that all activity of the Christian must be that which keeps us connected to the head because Christ alone gives us spiritual life. We're not to fall into the trap of counterfeit religion. This is why he says, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you into this counterfeit religion, based on this counterfeit religion. But then he follows it up in both cases, in verse 17 and then verses 18 and 19. He follows it up with the idea that Christ alone gives us spiritual life. It's at this point that Paul uses this imagery to point out that those propagating this counterfeit religion, even unknowingly, are like those who have separated from the head. Like chickens with no head, there might be animation, there might be lively activity, but it's actually a death knell rather than the true Christian life. For Paul has been clear throughout the letter thus far, there is only one supreme authority at the head of the cosmos, and that is Christ. And friends, we have to remember that oftentimes when Paul is speaking so pointedly about false teachers, he's actually speaking to the false teachers. You never read in Paul's scriptures that he is done. For goodness sakes, he said, I wish that I could go to hell so that all of my brethren could be saved. I think he would probably say the same about even those who treated him with contempt. Paul wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to plug back into the head. And so his words are not just an exhortation. His words are calling, begging them to step back into the truth of what Christian life is. For Paul has been clear throughout the letter thus far. There is only one supreme authority at the head of the cosmos, and that is Christ. And therefore, there is only one who can give life, and that is Christ. You see, he is the one, the only one who became incarnate and lived a sinless life. He is the only one who offered himself up as the sacrifice which can cleanse us from our sin. He is the one and only one who by his death freed us from our enslavement to the kingdom of darkness and to these false counterfeit religious practices. And he is the only one that satisfied the debt that we owed to God. He is the only one who received his place, the only place of supremacy, when he rose from the grave and was enthroned as king in the heavens. And it's from his spirit And only his spirit poured uh, out upon men and women that the church was formed and people were called to be part of his body. And so he is the only one. Christ alone is the one that gives spiritual life. And this life that he resurrected from the grave and that he poured out into his people, this body that was resurrected that is the body of Christ, it's a particular body. Not the body of sin or of flesh to which we once belonged, but it's the body of which he is the head, the church. And as I noted last week, this is not some ephemeral, ethereal body that does not exist in the material. This is a living, breathing organism that is located in the here and now in each local body of believers. And collectively, we make up the visible, universal church. The gospel I just outlined enlivened and brought uh, brought to life every Christian across time and space, yes, but really, The gospel resurrected one body. 
Do you realize that it was the one body, the body of Christ, that rose from the grave? To not be part of the one body that was resurrected from the grave is to not be in Christ. It's an impossibility. To be part of Christ is to be located within his body of believers. To be a Christian is to be part of a gathering of those purchased by the blood, united by the Spirit, and submitted to the supreme head of the body, Jesus Christ. And just as our physical bodies cannot live without healthy connection to our heads, the local body or the believer that believes they are within the body who is not connected to the head will slowly but surely die. And this is why we beg and plead one another, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. Well, I have a job schedule conflict. You know, I'm only going to be away from the body for, I don't know, like a year. You ever seen a finger that's fallen off a hand? Do you think it lasts for a year? Friends, something changed in our Christian world when we started to let our very jobs declare whether or not it was right to be with the body. The local body, or the believer that believes that they are within the body, who is not connected to the head, will slowly but surely die. And so it is out of love and life that we plead, do not forsake the gathering together. Do not be separated from the body. And when we allow one another to be separated for too long, we are doing a disservice to one another. For it's from the head, from Christ, that we receive our orders and signals that promote the animation of our spiritual lives. It's from the head, from Christ, that we receive our signal of life, if you will. And it's only in staying connected to the head and in a reciprocal relationship with the head and with the body that that head leads that we find spiritual growth and health. And so uh, connection to the head is the motivation, if you will, from which all our Christian activity should proceed. My Bible reading should be to recall to mind my brokenness and need and Christ's sweet, sweet grace that he offers contra-conditionally to my fleshly nature. It should be to cleanse me from the grotesque counterfeit wisdom of the world that I bathe in all week so that Christ's wisdom might overcome me and drive me and nourish me. That's why I read the Bible. That's why we read the Bible. My prayer life, our prayer life, should be that which calls for his help in destroying our pride and our flesh that might produce division so that we might be knit together to him and knit together as his people, as Paul even prays for in Colossae. Our prayer time should be a remembrance of his goodness and that he is worthy of all my life. It should be connected to the head, to Christ. My attendance in the gathering of his people and participation at his table of communion should be a time where I come with expectation to be nourished by his word preached and to stay knit together with his people, united under his gracious rule and united in worship, connected to the head. That is what our time at church should be about. Christ is the motivation. Christ is the enlivening force. Christ is the goal of it all. And friends, if this is true in our lives, if we are connected to the head, not by our power, but by his, and by simply living out our lives and giving over to his commands, it will produce growth. We have no choice. It's not a counterfeit growth of simple attendance numbers or tithe dollars or participation in programs or Bible reading plans, but it's a growth of conversion and sanctification that comes from God where we all take on the work of the ministry 
where we all participate in the growth within the body, where we're all responsible for one another. So that in Paul's words to the church of Ephesus, this will go on until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children. Notice the similarity of the words he's telling Colossae. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you think the same author wrote those two letters? You see, Christ alone gives us spiritual life when we live out of the love he has shown us and when we respond with a desire to love him and his people in return. And this connection to the head is also the filter. It's the filter, if you will, from which we can also discern what will produce fruit and what will not. And therefore, what religious activity the church should drive and what it should not. Let me show you what I mean. In the church, you will find trends that wax and wane in which people want to bring on new religious activity and experiences. Many of you may have experienced this. Anybody remember the prayer of Jabez? Anybody remember the purpose-driven life? Anybody remember the Daniel diet? Anybody remember the apostles' fast? These wax and wane. And we see that believers who step into these things, who go back to practicing feasts or get overly interested in Jewish practices that it does not lead to things that are good. What might have started as a good-hearted curiosity to know the Bible or to get closer to Jesus then moves into a religious tradition or practice that has more to do with the tradition itself and the ego of the adherence than it does with Christ. Why do we not still practice the feasts of the Jewish calendar? Uh, go one step further. Why do we not practice the same feasts as the Catholic Church? Why, for example, do we not have a Passover Seder meal at mission? We've thought about it before. Why don't we do it? Why do we not practice Shabbat and tell you to practice Shabbat each weekend? Well, because as Paul points out, these were simply shadows, types, if you will, that pointed to the true reality which is found in Christ. It would be like going to a picnic in the summer and seeing the little placards that say what food will be sitting there when it's served. And then somebody says, food is served, and you go, awesome, and you walk over and you start eating the placards rather than the food itself. He says in verse 17, these were a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I don't know about you, but when I get home, I don't want to talk to my wife's shadow. I want to talk to my wife. And to go back to these things that were foreshadows, when we have the reality in front of us of Christ, it makes no sense. And friends, just so you, don't, so you know, because you don't have it in front of you, do you know what the word in the Greek is where it says substance? These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The word is soma in the Greek. It could be translated body. Sitting among the body, you experience the fullness of Christ in his church. And yet we want to run off to spiritual novelties. As the New Testament church, we have one feast and one feast only. We have one ceremonial drink and one ceremonial food which encapsulate all the others and upon which we are filled each week and that is the Sunday assembly and the ordinance of communion. It is our feast and our meal 
each week. It's so important that he said, no, I'm not going to scatter it throughout the year. I'm going to put it every seventh day, beginning of the week, so to speak. It is our feast and our meal each week because it allows us to remember that we already know the Messiah King. We have already received his commands and we already dwell in his assembled kingdom. And it's from a point of remembrance rather than foreshadowing. Friends, to practice that which foreshadows, that which has already come, would be like a group who, rather than celebrate their adult male friend's birthday in remembrance of his birth, they instead ask him to get back in his diapers and reenact his baby shower. It sounds really odd, right? I know it's an odd picture, but that's the point. Why is it that we don't just relive the baby shower every year? We instead celebrate the birthday? It's because one foreshadowed the hope to come and one remembers that which has already been fulfilled. And so why go back to these things in Jewish mysticism or Jewish feasts when we have what is fulfilled right in front of us in the bread and the cup? And this helps us with what ceremonial drink and what ceremonial food connects us to the head. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11. Notice that it has been a tradition from the beginning of the church. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember this each week, don't we? Well, what about abstaining from food or drink as an act of worship? Well, Paul fought against this not only here in Colossians, but also in 1 Timothy. He said that there were those in that church who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You see, he fought against false teachers requiring self-denial in places where the Bible actually simply requires moderation and thanksgiving and wisdom. What about the worship of angels? Well, a knowledge of the word will also quickly remind us there that the angels themselves do not want worship, for they were created to worship Christ. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this. When he says this in Hebrews 1, 3 through 4, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Why would we worship angels? Every mass that I go to at my kids' Catholic school, where they talk about the archangels and the guardian angels and the saints. I want to scream out at the top of my lungs, and I've actually said to a couple of of, uh, my Catholic friends, why are you wasting time? You're worshiping the shadow. Why would we waste time with these things? The word is clear. It's so clear that these are, are shadows, but Christ is the substance. He is who all of this is about. You see, even if we worship the angels, notice their response. This is the angel after John tries to worship him in Revelation. You must not do that. (laughs) I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. And I know what my Catholic brothers and sisters would say. They'd say, we don't worship the angels. Yeah, but you just hang an idol of them around your neck. You just talk about them the entire service. You see, we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're not practicing counterfeit religion when we actually are. 
Any religious activity that is not based on, connected to, and empowered by Christ is simply a spiritual production, which will leave us worse off than before. It actually slowly kills us. And all the while, Christ alone gives us spiritual power. And we so quickly forget or stray or harden our hearts when the source of life is right before us. Now, just one point of clarification before we move on from this. I've often had this section of Scripture used as evidence that any Christian who tries to disqualify another Christian or hold another Christian accountable to a certain Christian lifestyle, activity, or conduct is like those false teachers creeping into Colossae. But brothers and sisters, that viewpoint would be classified as a heresy known as antinomianism, in which God requires nothing of those he saves, and grace is merely a means to do whatever you want when you are saved. It's the Christian heresy version of you do you, be your authentic self. But that is not what Paul is saying here. Paul was not against religious activity. He was not against religious tradition, nor was he against religious authority. For he, following after Christ, instituted and practiced baptism, communion, preaching of the word, gathering of the body, prayer, and so on. And he even declared this to the church at 2 Thessalonians that they needed to follow the traditions. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You see, his point is, is pay attention to what spiritual activity and what traditions you follow. And we could even go to 1 Corinthians where Paul commanded the church to judge the sin of those within its midst, to disqualify someone, to remove them because of their activity. So he is not saying, don't stand in authority, don't practice certain traditions, don't have activity. He is saying, make sure that his activity and traditions and authority that is what? Connected to Christ and under submission to Christ. Paul was not for religious apathy and lethargy that's crept into the church today. No, what his main point here was is that all of these religious activities were obviously counterfeit and did not possess spiritual power that they were proclaiming. They were spiritually fruitless because they simply stoked the ego of the one practicing them. None of them were actually for the purpose of staying connected to Christ, nor for the purpose of growing up his body, the church. And so, brothers and sisters, this should prompt us to ask the question, what spiritual activity is present in my life? What spiritual activity is present in our church? And what is its motivation? What is its fruit? Perhaps you might answer that and say, well, there's no activity. Then I would say, you need to be connected to the head, and there will be activity at that point. Is the motivation of our activity duty? Or is it a belief that it will force God to love you when he has already given you his grace? Or is it because that's what you and your family have always done? You've always been a Christian, so you just keep doing it. Or maybe the motivation is it's for the respect of men around you. Or is the motivation behind your spiritual activity because, like the psalmist declares, you want to hold fast to Christ in love? Is it because you want to hang on his every word? Is it because you want to spend time in his presence and you cannot imagine a better use of your time than prayer? Because he waits with open ears to pass on your prayer as he intercedes on your behalf. Is your spiritual activity motivated because you know that your nourishment, your life, it proceeds from him as supreme king of the cosmos and you can get it from nowhere else? Is it because you know that life only comes from immersing yourself in the knowledge of his love 
for you and in responding in loving praise to him. Friends, this is what should motivate us. It should motivate us to simply pause and let everything else go and to simply remember the cross and the resurrection and that should be the motivation that we need. Because the gospel shows us that Christ alone is where we gain life. And then we need to ask, what is the fruit of my activity? Has it become rote and boring to the point where it isn't missed when I forget it? If so, perhaps you, like I was this week, need to be reminded that our heart stance is important when we approach the throne of Christ. Perhaps this week you need to join me in prayer as we collectively cry out, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my hardened heart. Soften my heart. Supply me with a thirst that can only come from you. Empower me by your spirit to connect with you in prayer, to connect with you in your word and in communion, and to connect with you amongst your people. Friends, we have to, we must take on this challenge because this church must know, must learn to the very core of our being that life only comes from holding fast to Christ as his body. Life only comes from holding fast to Christ as his body. I know this is very similar to the second point, but we have to realize that we have to hold fast to him and do it collectively as his body. Paul continues, starting in verse 19. Would you read with me? He's talking about those who are doing these counterfeit religious practices. He says, those are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And then he challenges and questions. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Referring to the things that are all perished as they, that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and traditions. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul rightly points out to the believers in Colossae and to the believers in this church that we must remember that we have been moved out of one body that is dying and headless into a new body with a head that nourishes, strengthens, and supports. We have been moved out of a kingdom that was stated as vanquished and ashamed, the kingdom of darkness, into a kingdom that is vibrant and alive with the love of Christ. And not only have we been moved but our old self that existed in that place with Christ in the baptism that we looked at last week, it died and was buried. Why do we try to resurrect it so often? And we've been raised anew under a new head as part of a new body awaiting the restored heaven and earth in which we will eternally dwell. And friends, sometimes the simplest part of our battle in this life is to stop our senses and our emotions from being contrary to that truth. Because we say, well, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. I, I look around church and I, I don't know. Is this the kingdom of God? Well, it is because Christ says it is and his truth reigns. And so our fight is to take our hearts that are hardened and rebellious and submit them to that truth and say, Lord, help me by faith 
to see that truth and to live in that truth and act in that truth. And so Paul rightly questions, why, since you died and were removed from that kingdom and that rule and that world, why do you still act like you live there and exist under its rule? In a far less picturesque way, it would be as though I still, after 24 years of marriage, slept and ate and existed at home with my parents after I married my wife and she moved into our first home. If that were the case, they would rightly look at me and say, why are you still here? There is no, this is no longer your home, and we are no longer the household to whom you primarily belong, except your new identity as the husband of Kelly, as the father of your children, and as part of an entirely new family. To continue to approach religion and spirituality from a perspective of counterfeit paganism and religion, when we have been attached to the head of the kingdom by his very work of salvation, when we have been resurrected and enthroned, man, it is delusion and insanity. All of our spiritual activity, all of our religious practice flows now from Christ, is for Christ in worship, and is found in Christ amongst his people, his body. And this is so important for each and every one of us in this church, because as I said last week, I know, I know that each of you desires and craves spiritual growth in Christ. Friends, you would not be here each week if that were not the case. But growth does not come from religious practices for religion's sake. It does not come from self-denial of that which makes us act in sin or attempt to usurp authority from Christ just for self-denial's sake. We can fast, we can pray, we can memorize scripture, we can deny ourselves food and drink, we can exercise, we can do whatever rituals we believe will cause us to follow Christ more closely. And all of this like the activity the false teachers in Colossae were promoting, may look spiritual and wise. But in reality, it will do nothing to cause us to put aside sinful flesh and stand firm in the holiness of Christ if it is detached from the love of Christ. So then the question is, what will? What will have value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? My pastoral conversations with you, so many of you cleaned that up. What, Hans, what will help me finally walk in the holiness to which I so desire? Well, guys, God designed it perfectly. Because if he just gave us the holiness and perfection immediately, who would we think did the work? Us. And so the only solution to walk in holiness and righteousness is to cling, to hold fast to Christ amongst his body. We'll look at this fully, more fully next week as Paul begins chapter 3. But for now, let's simply realize that Paul's answer upon which he will expand was already given in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, here again in chapter uh, 2, verse 19. In chapter 1, Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In the early part of chapter 2, verse 2, Paul reminds them that his struggle is for those in this local church to have their hearts encouraged and knit together in love so that they might reach the full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so, put simply, that which will stop the indulgence of the flesh and cause us to grow in a growth from God is to hold fast to Christ as his body. It is for us to collectively take on the singular mission of proclaiming his gospel, learning his gospel, and living out his gospel in the midst of our relationships as covenant people. 
It is to unify over our intense desire to know and act out his commands and his will. It is to lay down our pride, our opinions, and our desires so that his will and his mission become our driving force. It is to study his word voraciously and with passion as a people, as many of you do. And it's to apply it in the regular and commonplace activity of our lives together. It's to unite in prayer as a people that we might be knit together in love for him and his word. That we might know and understand his commands and his will together. And that we might apply it when we undergo trials and temptations together. Life comes from holding fast to Christ as his body. And if you are a person who says, Hans, I've tried it, it doesn't work, you have not held fast enough. Friends, until your life is completely given over to Christ, you have not held fast enough and neither have I. And so we must continue daily pouring out our lives to Christ in connection with Christ, not in order to gain his love, but to live in it, to walk in it, to let it permeate every ounce of our being. As we close this morning, I want you to recall one of the ideas that I laid out for you in the introduction of this book, that Paul was enacting a stronger and more detailed view of the point and purpose of the church. Rather than just sporadic messianic communities, Christ was pulling off a work of forming a universal, worldwide church made up of local cells within those local communities. And within those communities, it would be made up of members and individuals all joined together under the supremacy of the head, which is Christ. And he was putting forth what theologians would call an early Catholicism, not because he was Catholic, but because Catholicism means universal, because the church needed to understand that we were not to function like pagans who individually attempt to woo and manipulate the gods through spiritual rituals in their life. Nor are we to function like the Jews who had a ceremonial and sacrificial system and closed the doors to other ethnicities because they alone were God's people. No, we are a bit of a different creature. Like Israel, we are a covenant people called to submit to the kingship of Christ. But unlike Israel, we are not looking to something promised, something we hope will come. We have received that which their ceremonies foreshadowed. And not only that, we have been so intimately joined to him and to one another that our growth will come from simply living out of the identity he has given us, the identity that has already been accomplished on our behalf through the cross and resurrection. Everything we then do, our Bible reading, our study, our memorization, our ministry of the word on Sundays, our corporate and individual prayer, our assembly, our baptisms, our Lord's Supper, our covenant commitment to one another, all of this is for the purpose of holding us fast to Christ and to knit our hearts together in love under his rule. We do it so that we might be nourished and knit together more closely, so that we might grow up and mature in love. And our hope is that this unified, loving submission to his truth might stand as a light in a dark world, beckoning all that are watching to come and be one with Christ and receive his gracious gift of salvation. That is why we do what we do. That is why we are who we are. And that is what Christ is accomplishing in us. Life only comes from holding fast to Christ as his body. And if you don't know him today and you're here with us, please come talk with one of the pastors about holding fast to Christ in faith. And for those of us that do already know him, let's cry out to Christ collectively as a church. I implore you to get on your knees with me and cry out to Christ as a church. 
to call him to give us the spiritual power that shows that we have life because we're connected to Christ. And let's do that even now as a church in the midst of the ordinance he gave us in communion. And let's ask in faith that we might be joined together to him and knit together with one another in love and that we might see individually and collectively a growth that can only come from God. That is true life. That is the revival that we and the rest of the world need. And so Jesus, please help us to fully grasp the spiritual life is found in holding fast to you. Let's pray. Father God, how quickly we confuse ourselves and make ourselves believe that we have been connected to you when in fact we have not. Lord, it is not just a mental connection. It's not just a social connection among your people, but it is a heart connection that we must have with you, that our hearts of stone might be turned to flesh, that they might pursue you to accept the love that you've given us wholeheartedly and to respond with love back towards you and your people. <coughs> and this is not simply a romantic love, one that comes and goes with feelings. But this is a covenantal love, a steadfast love that you have shown us by your work on the cross. And so we pray that as a community, as we come to your table of communion and as we sing these songs of worship, Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts. Not just convert them into your kingdom, but that you would cut away the flesh that still clings to our hearts that still desires to do religious activity on our own power so that we might prove ourselves to you. But Lord, as we go to your table, remind us that what we have proven is that we are sinful and rebellious and not deserving of your salvation. And yet what you have proven in return is that you are good, gracious and merciful and steadfast, and you have called us into your household. And so this morning, Lord, as we go to your table, please change our hearts. Call us together in unity as a people in your body and let our flesh fade away so that we can go out this week as your ambassadors calling people into your kingdom through the very lives that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.